morning all. It's so great to see everybody mingling again and, and people coming back. I have to tell you about this horrible dream that I had this morning. I woke up from, thank goodness, but I had this dream that there was like this 14-month like deadly virus going around and we all had to wear these things called masks right every day. And it, No, I'm kidding, obviously. Uh, it is very nice to see those of you who are comfortable and vaccinated without your muzzles. I mean masks. Well, maybe I do, right? Um, <laughs> today and uh, others, right? We do respect your rights. And I thank you who aren't vaccinated who decided to wear it in consideration of others right through there today. So I applaud you for that as well. Uh, today, we are continuing after our break last week for Mother's Day. We're continuing in our study for of the Acts of the Apostles. Going through there, Jim asked me to do both chapters 25 and 26 today all in one. So some of you I know have mentioned I've gone a little long the last couple, so I am purposing today I will get you out by 5 p.m., okay? Is that okay with everybody? No, I think we're going to do a little bit better than that. So just to give you um, a refresher, um, where we are in Acts, Paul is, literally continues to stand trials before Romans and Jewish officials. The main crux of what we've been uh, learning throughout these sections is that even though Paul has done nothing against the law of God, nothing against the law of the Jews, and nothing against the law of Rome, Jewish officials and a great number of Jewish authorities want him dead. In fact, you can describe this entire section of Acts, going back maybe as far as chapter 21, as a series of kangaroo courts where Paul is being wrongfully accused of actions deserving death. Now, I have to ask you before we start, have you ever been wrongfully accused of something in your life? Just about everybody can say that they have. How did that feel? No one's going to say good. <laughs> but I really want you to think about that a second. Right? And this is, by all counts, at least the third trial for the same thing where nobody can find anything that Paul's doing. And he's going through over and over and over again. Let me ask you this, too. When you were wrongfully accused... Did you defend yourself? Right. Did you defend yourself well? How did that go for you? And I know when I think back to my times, defending myself, I felt like I was opening myself up to being defensive. <laughs> right? By, by nature. And so when you're wrongfully accused and you're saying these things, it's hard to look innocent, right, when you're being defensive. So keep that in mind as well. A tremendous challenge that we go through in a very small way, Paul going through in a big way. Now, unfortunately, right, our times and the political environment in the U.S. are leading to more and more frequency for people being wrongfully accused, right? We think nothing of accusing each other sometimes of racism, terrorism, hate speech, racial supremacy, extremism insurgency, and misinformation. Sometimes it's warranted, but these charges just seem to fly back and forth at will today. 
Many times, all of this is in name of justice, in the search of justice. Well, the people of God have always faced persecution and wrongful accusation, and the Bible clearly tells us it's going to get worse before it gets better. But as a child of God, as Christians, we're not simply called to endure this persecution, to be defensive and defend ourselves. We're called to witness in the face of this worldliness. So that's the title of this message today as we go through these two chapters in Acts. Turn with me now, if you will. If you have your Bible on your phone or whatever is your favorite version, you can bring it. I'm going to be reading from the ESV version, but there are a few Bibles with NIV right in front of you. The content is essentially the same. It's just worded a little bit different. And I'm going to warn you a little bit. It's going to take some fortitude to get through because I'm going to read both chapters today. And that's because we know you never read your Bible unless it's in church, right? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> that's not reason. The reason is, as I struggled to really say, how do I boil all of this down and make a succinct piece of it, right, or story of it? I found that really the most direct way for you to get the totality of the story was just to read the Word of God. All right? So let's enjoy that together, and I'll read and help take us through. Starting at Acts 25, chapter 1. Now three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul. And they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul that he summon him to Jerusalem. Because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. So I'll pause here a second. We see these courts where they can't convict him. They can't convince the Roman officials to do something. And the Jews come up with this plan. Let's get him transferred here. And on his way, we'll kill him. Right? Means justify the ends. Or the ends justify the means. But they go on. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So he, or so said he, let the men of authority among you go down with me. And if there's anything wrong about the man, let him bring charges against him. Now I'm going to stop here a second because some of you who know the maps think about where Judea is in Caesarea and it's all the way north to Caesarea. And you're like, what? The Bible's wrong. No, the Bible's not wrong. It's speaking of elevation, not north and south. Judea was up. They had to go down into the lower lands to get to Caesarea. Verse 6. After he stayed among them, not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. The formal judgment seat. Right, where court was held in that region. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. There's the stories in a nutshell in that verse. They brought lots of charges. They just couldn't prove anything. Paul argued in his defense 
Neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar, have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal, where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I don't seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. In previous messages, we covered the Roman citizenship and the rights that were afforded to Paul. He's still working with and within those rights. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his council, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. Verse 13, now when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king. There's a man left prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. 16, I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had an opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evil as I had supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus, who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then, at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all who were present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appeared to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. 
For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. What's going on here? Festus, the governor, has to send him to the emperor. It's Paul's right. But he doesn't even know how to write up the charges. He doesn't even know where to start. Right? And he doesn't want to look foolish. I'll explain that coming up shortly. So in Acts 26, verse 1, Agrippa says to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. Right? A very show in addressing everybody, a formal type piece. Thinking back, and for those of you that remember this or maybe didn't know, Paul was from a family of lawyers educated by the finest lawyers in Jerusalem. Right? So he's standing before them. He was made for this, right, to give this witness. Verse 2, I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. He says, my manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Right? Paul was a zealot, and as part of his testimony, he lays it out there. Right? He's not sugarcoating anything. Verse 12, in this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet. For I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles, to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes 
so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I've had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said will come to pass. That the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. Right? Festus had had enough at that point. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persecuted that none of these things has escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, In a short time would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king rose, and the governor, and Bernice, and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, This man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. All right, so very long, right, to go through these, but a wonderful picture of what's going on and really the most succinct way to go through it. I mentioned that when Jim asked me to cover both of the chapters today, I knew I was in for a daunting task. And of course I said yes pretty quickly. And then I suffered to come up with how I was going to cover all the subject matter in such a short time. (laughs) Okay, now... These chapters are primarily filled with historical content. You've probably noticed that already, right? Not a lot of theology of sort in here to really kind of teach from and go through. And I know that all of us, right, say, I just love history. It was my favorite class in school, right? Said no one anywhere ever, (laughs) except maybe a couple of people, but you've got something wrong with you. Anyway... (laughs) (laughs) I'm just kidding, right? I decided to hold a gym class here today for the rest of the content. No. (laughs) Um, There's great content here. So to help you, the hearers, kind of focus, and admittedly to get out and get us out of uh, church before dinner time, (laughs) we're going to have to focus on just the three main aspects of these chapters. So here's the three I I decided to pick. First, we're going to talk about the players, 
that are involved. And I'll give you some context and background so you can understand the dynamics a little bit better of what's going on. Next, we're going to talk about the witness, or really the testimony of Paul. Then we're going to finish by going through the verdict. Does that sound fair? All right. Well, let's get into it. But before I do, I want to stop, pause, and pray. So bow your heads with me. Heavenly Father, your uh, word is like a wellspring to our souls. And this morning, we have a lot that we are processing and attempting to drink. Father, we know that you are uh, the God of revival. And as we look about situations today, we pray that all would come to know you and come to know you soon. Father, we know that in the end times, every knee will bow, right? And, and everyone will acknowledge that you are God. But we want for their benefits that they would come to know your grace, your mercy, your love, and the wondrous deeds you do. Father, today as we hear the word and we go through it and process it and pour over it and meditate, would you help it just challenge and permeate our minds and then move into our hearts. And then, Father, continue and give us the grace and mercies as we take that from our hearts and strive to live it out in our hands and feet, all for your glory and in the name of your precious Son, Jesus. So, Father, it's in that name that we pray to you today. Amen. All right. So let's look at the players. I'm going to start with Felix. Now, Lance, two weeks ago, mentioned him for the first time, and today, we didn't really mention Felix. But I think it's important that you understand who he is and what his role was in getting Paul to where he's at right now. So Felix was the procurator of Judea from AD 52 to AD 60. As procurator, he basically has some specific jobs right, in that Roman province, in essence, he was the governor. He was responsible to be, govern the entire area, to be the judicial authority, as well as to set the laws and the edicts that would happen in that day and in that area. A.D. 52 to A.D. 60. Well, in A.D. 60, he was recalled by Nero due to racial riots between the Jews and Syrians. And we know this from looking into historical facts like Josephus. He mentions him and talks about him. And because of these things between the two groups, right? sound familiar? Still going on today, basically, right? with rockets and back and forth, and we hear those in the news. But basically, um, Nero, the emperor, recalled him and said, you're done. You're not doing well in that area. Right? You're not making things better. This was who tried Paul the first time and then decided to have Paul hang around in prison. We'll talk about that. But he was originally a slave and he was freed by the emperor Claudius's wife. So a man who was a slave elevated into the position of prominence. And I thought this was pretty interesting to kind of talk with you about today because it's been my experience and I don't know if it's yours but have you ever known someone who's suddenly come into like a lot of money or a lot of success? It seems like they go one extreme or the other, right? Many who that happens to are so grateful, they understand and can identify 
right, with those who do not have as much as they have, and they treat people with the respect, maybe not letting it affect them and doing the others. But there's a whole other set of people who just tend to lose their mind, right? When that suddenly happens, then all of a sudden they're better than everybody else, right? Their nose is in the air. They know better. All the things that happened to them were completely of their own doing, right? And you're in control of your own destiny, and everybody else is in their situation because there's something wrong with them. And they just immediately do that. That was really Felix, right? And Felix was known as a monstrous leader. He was full of lust, greed, and corruption through his time. He was really well-renowned. If you ever go back here and you read the Antiquities of the Jews in, um, uh, from Josephus, they talk a lot about the things that he did today, just the real monstrosities through there. Um, not what we would look at at all and say a good, uh, noble politician type, but maybe a lot more like some examples we could find also in there how it was operated. However... He treated Paul well, and he gave him private audience. So several times, yeah, he put Paul in jail because the Jews asked him to do that. Originally, the centurions saved Paul from a riot when they tried to kill him, and that's why he thought the safest place for him, right, was in jail. But when he couldn't find anything from his first trial, he kind of let Paul tarry in the jail. <laughs> now, a lot of people and scholars say he treated him well, because he was hoping and holding Paul and hoping to get a bribe. Now, whether that bribe would come from Paul and his followers to pay him to release him, or whether that bribe would come from the Jews, right, to give me some good money and then maybe I'll let him go. But it never happened, and he was removed right in the middle. So enter Festus, the one who we've heard about procuring over there who was Festus. Now, he was the, the next successor, and he was the procurator uh, of Judea from AD 60 to AD 62, only two years, appointed by Nero. Um, he died, basically, in AD 62, and that's why it was cut short. He also is referred to as Festus Portius when you look for sort of those historical records. Now, he was a much more reasonable and upright ruler than Felix. He had a reputation, and that's why Nero put him in there. He said, we actually kind of need good leadership in there. Now, take it with a grain of salt. It's coming from Nero, right? But still, he said, we need some good leadership to kind of get this place back in order. Next, we see through the, the passages that I read that he really wanted to restore the rule of law. The Romans, we talked about this a lot, that... Uh, today, with us being a constitutional republic in the U.S., we model several forms of our government against the Romans. That doesn't mean we model it exactly as they have, but the bicameral house, right, of the house and the senate is one of those areas. How we break down different things and give a power into the individual states and other things are there. But anyway, the rule of law said that you were innocent until proven guilty. Sound familiar? Right? started way back then. Oh, that we wish that that were true. <laughs> now it seems like there's a lot of media who find people guilty before right, they're actually proven or have their day in trial. Paul dealt with that to a certain extent here. 
But Festus wanted to restore that. And he thought the best way is to hear him and weigh those things for himself. We also see that he made this immediate attempt at conciliation with the Jews. If you go back in the 25.1, it says within three days. So here's this man. They removed the previous guy. They put him in there. And in three days, he's looking at this guy that's been stuck in jail for two years going, I got to do something here. Right, that tells you something about this man, right? He wants things in order. He knows that there's sort of a hubbub around Paul, right? And he knows that the relations have been strained, so let me take care of this right away. Not a procrastinator in any sorts, right? We see in 25, 4 to 5, verses 4 to 5, that he has this concern for true justice, Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So he said, let the men of authority among you go down with me. And if there's anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. The Jews wanted to kill him. Apparently, Festus kind of figured this out because of the unusual request. And he said, no, come to the formal court if you're going to make charges. All right, that's a man that respects the rule of law and wants true justice. So very admirable. And then we see this attempted compromise, but it's failure in 25.9. He says, Paul, why don't we go up to Jerusalem and you can get tried before me? What is that? He's going to make a stand in front of all the Jews and basically try the case on its merits only. Right? So he would do that right in front. You Paul. Paul says, no, I want to go to Caesar. That's where my appeal is. Right? He Okay, didn't work out that way. But then you also see that he's a wise man and he says, well, maybe there's more to this than I really understand. Let me seek the counsel of King Agrippa. Now, um, in 25, and this goes through, he checks, he relays the story. And as you look, you can find very factual account in how he relays the story to Agrippa. Right? Now, how many of you have ever had to tell a story that, like, maybe you're involved in and you want a solution? What happens naturally? Right? You kind of emphasize the things that are important to you. Right? You de-emphasize the things that maybe aren't so important. Or maybe you de-emphasize or leave out some details that may make it hard for you to get the outcome that you want. We don't see any of that right, in his testimony and how it's recorded in Acts. So we see a man that's fair. What does this do? This creates that picture of the worldly, secular leadership. Let me tell you, there are good people out there, right, who are not Christians, who like law, who like justice, right, but they are led by their secularism, their own versions of moralism or some other sort. They don't follow God. And what we see from this person, though, Right is verse 25 to 19, is that he viewed Jesus and the resurrection as superstition. It's way there. Right? He thought Paul was crazy. That shouldn't surprise any of you. I mean, we all realize, right, as Christians, that the outside world, this is ridiculousness. It really is. What? A man died and rose again, and he died for my sins? I think we have to be honest and really think about the prepostery of this biblical sense to outside secular people. No wonder they think we're all crazy, 
right? And that's reflected very accurately in this account. He's looking at him going, I want justice. I want to do the fair thing. I want to resolve this problem that's going on. This man is crazy. He's cuckoo. And there's probably some contempt in here for the Jews themselves, right, that is also playing into the fact. So we see this piece. What about that Herod Agrippa, King Agrippa, King Herod? And now I'm going to really hit you with the historical facts, right? How many times have we seen King Herod in the Bible? You might think it's just once, but it's not, right? There's a whole lineage of these Herods. I'll go through it a bit. At this time, King Herod Agrippa, and it's Agrippa II, was a king of a very small part of Palestine from AD 53 to AD 70. So many of you, when you hear King Herod, you immediately think of the King Herod and the slaughter of the innocents right back in Matthew at the time of Christ, who killed and ordered to kill all the babies beforehand. That was who was known as Herod the Great. At that point in time, he ruled over all Judea. Right? His son, Herod Antipas, is who killed John the Baptist. So we're getting a pattern here with the family, right? And he was known as a tetriarch in the Bible, which means he only ruled a quarter of Judea at that time. So we can see they're shrinking in their influence as they go along. Then you can move on and you can add um, Agrippa I, right? And now this is Agrippa II. So he really is the son of Herod Agrippa I and the last ruler within the Herod family. And their influence has shrunk to a very symbolic part of Palestine. And really, the historians tell us that Nero gave that to them just kind of appease it. The Jews want a king. He's been in their line of kings. Here, you can have this little area. right? We don't care. Be the king there. So he's really a figurehead at this point. Right? Anyway, he was from full Jewish bloodline. He was descendant from the Maccabean priest kings. So here's a man who fully knows, who's grown up, Jewish, understands his religion, understands all the promises that God had made to the Jewish people, stands within there, given the responsibility and the mission by God to be a priest, right? Given additional responsibility to be a king and ruler over it. And what we see is a man that's far out from what his purpose was. He's nowhere near his purpose. Why? Historians tell us he was a fleshly and lustful leader that was morally deficient. He was perverted and unconcerned with the law of God. So he grew up in the religion, probably didn't believe it at all. Right? At least his actions kind of showed that. He was more concerned about getting his and making and doing whatever's right. You see this Bernice that comes along with them? Well, she was his half-sister. And he was living in an incestuous relationship with his half-sister the entire time. So when he comes before the court, the Jews, not only does he come with pomp and circumstance and spectacle, oh, he was a spectacle, and he insulted all the Jewish people who were there, that he would even bring in, right, this incestuous relationship and sit her on the seat right next to the Roman governor and him. Amazing. You didn't know the Bible contained this much stuff, right? All this drama. So let's look at the witness of Paul. First, in 26.2, he says, I consider myself fortunate to be presenting before Agrippa. 
And we see in there, that's because he knows, I've done nothing wrong, but I'm telling you, God is fulfilling his promises. And Agrippa, you would understand that. But take a second here. Remember I asked you earlier on, how did, you know, have you ever been wrongfully accused? Was fortunate a feeling that came to your mind or that? I would submit probably not. It's probably one of the farthest things. You don't go, oh, you know, you're unrighteously uh, accusing me? Oh, joy, happy, my chance, right, to vindicate myself. But many of you, if you think back, in those vindications, right, you come out to a different position by that. And in many cases, that is much better for you. An honest man will be shown honest. Right? If you did nothing wrong, you'll be proven to have shown nothing wrong in most cases. And then people will trust you more as a result of that. Take that to Paul's witness. Paul knows, get as many courts as you want. I'm talking to loads of people and I'm telling them about Jesus every time I do this. All right? Next, Paul says he lived a very strict life. He was a Pharisee. How many times do we see Jesus condemn the Pharisees because they were all about their religion and being strict to their religion and not understanding what was going on in the big picture? Next, he said he lived a very orthodox life. So Paul was a rule follower. Do we have anybody here that's a rule follower too? Right? My daughter's a rule follower. I'm a rule follower. Right? If you just tell me the rule, I'm going to follow it. That's right? just where I start at. Um, Next, it says he lived a very flawed life. In 26, 9 to 11, Paul doesn't sugarcoat, as I mentioned. He's not trying to make himself look great in this defense. Conversely, he's trying to say, oh, no, I was like you, and in many cases, I was worse than you. And then it says he lived a very changed life. In 26, verses 12 to 8, he talks about that experience of encountering Christ. And his life after was so different, that is what speaks in his testimony. right? Not that he believed the promises like Agrippa, but never lived him, that he was like Agrippa and totally changed. Very important. And then we see that he lived a purposeful life after that. Paul says several times and in verse 26, I was obedient to God. And we hearken all the way back to the beginning of Acts. Right, where they would rather be obedient to God, right, and condemned by men than find favor with men and be disobedient to God. Last, he has this faithfully bearing witness to small and great. Paul's no respecter of persons. Our God is no respecter of persons, right? Importance, the gospel is not just for the important people. The gospel is for everybody, and Paul modeled that. So let's look at the world's reactions here for the verdict. First, you have the secular reaction that comes in in 26, uh, verse 24. And it says that as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. You're crazy. Expect it. It's the first reaction from the world. This stuff doesn't make sense to them. They don't have the ability to believe. Right? And Agrippa said to Paul in a short time, in verse 28, would you persuade me to be a Christian? That's that fleshly reaction. Agrippa knows everything Paul just said is very much persuasive. Agrippa recognizes the truth. Oh, I see the truth. 
But Agrippa doesn't want the truth because he's not leaving his incestuous relationship. He's not going to cast out all the things he's done and fully repent and change his life. And we see that today. Right? When people are witnessed to, and Lance did a good job of kind of going through the reactions of different people earlier on, but we see this fleshly reaction. Yeah, I want God if God can give me something extra. Right? I want God because then I'll read the Bible and it'll help calm me down through the, uh, through the pandemic. I'll read the Bible so I have some good words to post on Instagram. Right, to go through. That's a fleshly reaction. You don't want God for God and then you're changed. You want God for what he can give you. Or you don't want God for what he asks you to do. And then the worldly, secular verdict that we see in 31 to 32. In 31, and when they had withdrawn, they said to another, this man's doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. This man could have been set free had he not appealed to Caesar. Now don't let this get lost on you. Paul could have gone free if he would have accepted the worldly or secular way out. Paul wasn't trying to force a specific outcome. He was more focused on following Christ. He knew that to have the approval of men and women was delightful. He also knew that to have the approval of his own conscience is better still. But Paul was focused beyond that on the prize. To have the approval of his Savior And hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. God's way was different. Paul was to travel on to Rome and testify before one of the worst emperors known to Rome, Nero. Burner of Rome, right? The one who set Rome ablaze and devastated it. (laughs) Um, He's also the emperor who put more Christians to death than any other ruler. But that's the story for our continuing study in Acts. So you'll have to come back in subsequent weeks to hear more about how that turns out. So witness in the face of worldliness. And I don't know, is the worship team doing a final song? If you are, you can come up. If not, send you out. Let me ask you this. Who do you identify with in this story? I went through the players, right? Are you... Looking at them going, hmm, is that me? Is that me? I would submit to you that most of us sitting in here would say Paul. Right? I identify with Paul. I'm standing up. I'm unfairly accused, as I mentioned. Right? I'm going to live out my life for Christ. Well, let me give you a few quotes from some people, and then I'll ask you the question again. Let's start with J.C. Ryle. There's a common worldly kind of Christianity in this day, which many have, and they think they have enough, a cheap Christianity which offends nobody and requires no sacrifice, which costs nothing and is worth nothing. I'll ask you, challenge, who do you offend with your belief in your religion? Next, Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers. He says, if you live for yourself, for money, for fame, for comfort, or for anything else, Christ is not your king. And how about someone much more recent, Stephen Lawson. 
He says, the demands of following Christ will cost you everything. But you gain far more than you give up. You give up dirt for diamonds. Let me just say to you today, if you haven't come to your Damascus road, Christ is there for you. And maybe you look at your life the way Paul did because you now see that life differently. And you go, I want to live that changed life from this point forward. I ask you to talk to me afterwards, talk to one of the other elders or someone in here, and we can tell you and lead you right through that. How do you do that? How do you go about just being changed from that point forward? Last thing I'll leave you before we go is a quote from the other Spurgeon, Susanna Spurgeon. She said and witnessed, just as was mentioned earlier, that decline of Charles Spurgeon. All of his sickness, all his ailments, seeing this great man, the priest of, preacher, uh, the priest, prince of preachers, <laughs> say that twice. <laughs> um, basically, she saw him wither away there and then just slave away at his love the whole time. She said this, the soul that has learned the blessed secret of seeing God's hand in all that concerns it cannot be prey to fear. It looks beyond all second causes straight into the heart and will of God and rest content because he rules. Faith Fellowship, you've traded dirt for diamonds if you believe in Christ. Don't be afraid of fear because our God reigns and he's in control of everything. Amen.